You're listening to the Legal Talk Network. Hello, I'm Bob Ambrogi. And I'm Monica Bay. We've been writing about law and technology for more than 30 years. That's right. During that time, we've witnessed many changes and innovations. Technology is improving the practice of law, helping lawyers deliver their services faster and cheaper. Which benefits not only lawyers and their clients, but everyone. And moves us closer to the goal of access to justice for all. Tune in every month as we explore the new legal technology and the people behind the tech here on Law Technology Now. Hello, this is Dan Lina. Welcome to Law Technology Now on the Legal Talk Network. My guest today is David Curl, Director of Enterprise Content at Thomson Reuters Legal Executive Institute. David provides research and thought leadership around the competitive environment and the changing legal services industry. David, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dan. Nice to be here. Well, before we get started, we want to thank our sponsors. First, welcome to our new sponsor, Headnote. Headnote helps lawyers get paid faster with their compliant e-payments and accounts receivables automation platform. To learn how to get paid quicker and more efficiently, visit them at headnote.com. That's headnote.com. So David, thanks again for joining us today. Can you just start by telling us a little bit about your role at Thomson Reuters? Sure. Um, The Legal Executive Institute, first of all, is a group within um, Thomson Reuters that tries to help our customers understand the the changing environment that they're they're working in. Uh, My particular focus is on technology and innovation, but we have other folks on on our team that do a lot of research around law firm performance, for example, um, issues like diversity and inclusion and talent uh, development in the industry and that sort of thing. But as I said, I I focus specifically on technology and innovation. So we're we're kind of in the same space. Okay. Yeah, great. Um, Well, let's just jump right in. And I think defining innovation is interesting. Some people have been saying that innovations become a meaningless buzzword and that we should stop using that word. I mean, I, I disagree. I, I really think we it's critical that we better define what do we mean when we say innovation in the legal industry. And, and I mean, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't think it's very helpful to ban words. It's better to just use them better, maybe. But I think you're right. You know, we, you know, we could have a better definition. You know, one, one thing that our head of R&D, um, Khalid Al-Kofai, says is, is that he doesn't like the word innovation because a lot of people associate it with sort of aimless experimentation or people sort of sitting around waiting for inspiration for new ideas, when in fact, um, you know, he believes that innovation really requires a lot of discipline and, and accountability and would, would prefer to, to sort of see it that way. So, you know, in terms of defining it, you know, maybe Khalid would, would say innovation is the discipline of finding new ways to do things, you know, with, with the emphasis on discipline as well as the innovation part. Um, and, the, and the other part of it is that I think it's important that, to remember that innovation isn't just about technology. In the legal services industry, there's room for innovative business models, innovative you know, new product design, um, new s- sort of staffing models, resourcing models, all kinds of parts and moving parts in the industry can be innovated around. It's not just about kind of technology and IT. Well, and I know you spend a lot of time looking across the whole industry. And uh, you know, it used to be that it was we we're really just focused on the law firms mm-hmm. uh, and then the law firms in the legal departments. Uh, and now we started to talk about alternative legal services providers and, and the big four. I mean, how do you kind of conceptualize, like, how do we, should, can we be thinking about what this space looks like? How would you describe it? Well, you're right in that there seems to be sort of new players, new, new you know, entities in the, in the industry now, and also sort of new types of roles. And I think we're going to continue to see more, more fragmentation along those lines, frankly. I mean, there's the alternative legal service providers have you know, been around for a long time now. They're an established part of the industry. They're not going away. They're specializing and focusing on certain things and certain services. There's likely to be sort of even more sort of niche-oriented players that do you know, even a narrower range of things, but just do it all the time and do it well. Um, and then you know, on the client side, the corporate side, 
you see a lot of change there in, in, the, in the rise of the legal operations uh, thinking, and um, you know they're playing a much bigger role, I think, than they used to in the in the innovation side of the industry. Well, when you talk about innovation in uh, you know, let's start at the the two kind of traditional places we'd most frequently look: legal departments and law firms. What kind of things are you seeing there? What kind of differences are you seeing in in legal departments versus law firms? You know, I think one difference is that a challenge that law firms have is kind of distinguishing themselves, differentiating themselves from from other law firms. And, you know, and quite frankly, until recently, most law firms you know, offered the same set of services, had the same set of practice areas. You know, th- there were a lot of sort of generalist firms. I think they are feeling the pressure to, to show innovation in, in different ways um, and to um, to come up with innovation programs, uh, appointing chief innovation officers. There's a lot of activity. Uh, it's not clear that you know all, all that activity is leading to sort of value for clients all the time, but I think there is more and more, and I, and I see more evidence of it all the time. On the client side or the corporate side, it's a lower profile type of innovation, but it's just as important. Um, you know, uh, legal operations uh, professionals are, are really remaking some of the ways that, uh, that legal uh, problems are approached in-house. Uh, and that's a sort of a quieter form of innovation that's gone on for some time now. Well, David, you mentioned that there's pressure on law firms. And it's interesting because there sometimes kind of seems to be mixed messages about what's happening at law firms. Folks like Richard Susskin talk about the difficulty of telling a room full of millionaires that their business model is wrong. And even the AMLAW data from a high level seems to suggest that firms, uh, you know, part of the takeaway was the idea that firms had their best year ever. Although I spoke with with Nick and Gina from ALM a couple of weeks ago, and, and, and there's more to the story than that. But um, I mean, what when you say there's pressure on firms, like how would you describe more like where that's coming from and, and, and what really kind of that means? Well, I think I think there is pressure in the you know financial pressure or you know, demand side pressure on on firms for, uh, sort of in the middle. I think the the AMLA data reflects you know that and, and our data, our peer monitor data, kind of shows the same thing too. Is that there's there is a top level of firms that seem to be immune to everything and they're they're going gangbusters, and then there's you know sort of the middle layers of the AMLA 200 that are not growing as as well. And and you know if you think of the whole industry over the past you know. 10, 11 years since the downturn. It, it really has been flat. And I think not going down is not a great, yeah, <laughs> is yeah, not the best yeah. measure. I mean, if you're, if, right. if you're flat, you're, you're sometimes uh, standing still. Um, so I think there is some financial pressure, but there's also, I think, more just, you know, a lot of it is just a competitive uh, pressure um, firms wanting to define themselves and, and stake out a differentiate in, in, in technology and innovation. And I think this is another interesting thing that we hear when we look at innovation. And I'm seeing more and more indications that even this top level of the market, maybe they are immune in some ways. But uh, based on some of the things I'm seeing, I'm certainly seeing innovation in some of what we'd call the top firms. Mm-hmm. I mean, are, are, how would you describe like what maybe some of those top firms are doing? Yeah, I, I have to say that. I mean, there's it's not like nothing's happening. It's not that it's all show. I mean, there are firms where... You see a pretty good, healthy adoption of some of the new technologies offered by vendors. You see some of the internal innovation programs, you know, leading to rethinking of how uh, how processes are handled. I think you know one thing that you have to remember is a lot of times this stuff is incremental. You know, it's it's not necessarily about some big bang that's going to um, change a business overnight. Uh, but it's it's more about you know fixing processes, um, introducing some technology here and there, uh, and 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 approaching uh, business problems in in different ways. Um, so it's not always you know high profile stuff. It may be fairly niche oriented, but it does have an effect on 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 clients. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that's a great point, and that's something that's come through with quite a few of my guests is just talking that about innovating for the long haul and and. You're saying your colleagues are talking about the discipline of innovation, mm-hmm. and, and a lot of those things may not be so apparent on the outside, and it's more of investments mm-hmm. that are going to pay dividends longer term, mm-hmm. things like that. Mm-hmm. Well, what about if we really kind of look at this from the perspective of in-house counsel, and uh, you get a lot of opportunities to talk with folks inside of, of legal departments, and when they say that they want their lawyers and law firms to innovate, what do you think it is that they want? More stuff, faster and cheaper. You know, <laughs> they're like any customer in that sense. Um, maybe what they want that they haven't gotten in the past is mostly around uh, you know a flexibility or a willingness to do things differently, 
particularly around things like pricing and uh, you know structuring, budgeting, um, various matters and projects. And and I think I think the dynamics are are changing in the industry where you know the client used to order the work. The lawyers would at the firm would go off and do it and 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 bring it back. And now I think there's much more expectations for, around collaboration. You know, like how do we roll up our sleeves and work on this together? The firm, the firm lawyers and the in-house lawyers. How do we find a process that works better, whether that's within the law firm or within the the client? Um, so I think that's a source of a little bit of pressure and 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 demand is is you know let's let's collaborate more on this stuff. Can you give any examples, kind of that, or and and um, even just kind of the beginning stages of what that collaboration might might look like or we had a legal executive institute uh, event yesterday here in Chicago called augment um, and it was kind of focused around artificial intelligence for the most part uh, and one of the big issues had to do with you know before you before you get to using AI before you can turn an algorithm loose on a bunch of data you have to have the data in good shape you have to know that it's accurate you have to know you'll have continuous access to it, so rights to the data of different kinds. And that's one area where I think there, there I, I do see a lot of collaboration. There were a number of examples from, in that conference of, of law firms using their legal expertise to sort of advise on the processes around data governance that the, that the client can use. But then there's also, you know, the sort of technical aspect of of data governance. You know, how do you how do you maintain access to the data? How do you maintain all the APIs that let it work together and stuff like that? So I think there, those, I guess, would be some some examples that that, that I was hearing yesterday. Okay, you know, well, it's interesting that uh, the comment about uh, customers, right, and 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 what customers are expecting in other verticals, and I see a lot more discussion about that we. We need to stop referring to clients as clients and, and thinking about them as customers and kind of thinking, you know, with this broader perspective. I think this kind of touches on something where in the legal industry, you know, my experience as a practicing lawyer and then even what I see frequently when I speak and talk to others is that the reluctance of lawyers to to get feedback from clients mm-hmm. um, and, and to um, actually listen to what they're they're asking for. And uh, I mean, how much of that is kind of what is maybe critical to the whole idea of, I mean, are are enough lawyers really asking this question of their clients? Yeah, I think that's a big part of the challenge. You know, I I don't want to just repeat stereotypes about lawyers and how they're anti-technology or whatnot. But I do, you know, I do think there's a distance between, particularly between firm lawyers and and not so much the in-house lawyers, but the the business, uh, you know, people running the businesses at the, at the clients, you know, and their needs and their expectations. Maybe there's a bit of a disconnect. I think that's certainly one of the areas where you know the industry could could do better. Yeah. Well, you know, so related to that, I, I have kind of this idea that lawyers were tend to not ask the clients how we're doing. I mean, especially if the client paid the bill, it's like, well, why would we go back and ask any questions? It's like, just move on and don't even get them thinking about whether we did a good job or how we might improve. And, and of course, that creates problems if you're not getting that feedback and thinking about how to improve asking the questions. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, I think I think back to the you know quote that was attributed to Henry Ford. This idea, like, oh, if I'd asked the customers what they want, they would have said faster horses, mm-hmm. which you know I think really kind of means that you, as a service provider, the idea of having empathy for the client, it's like understanding their problems and maybe delivering a solution they had hadn't even conceived of. And you know, I mean, do you think there are opportunities in legal for us to really be thinking that way? Or? Absolutely. I mean, I mean, I think you know the law firms have been delivering the same kind of horses for all these years, and uh, you know, it's it's it. If you think of yourself as being in the horse business, you know, that's it's hard to change. And so, I think maybe to anticipate a, one one of your other questions here, you know, that's partly what I think is behind the rise of alternative legal services providers is this desire to say, okay. Look, here's a different way to deliver this service. A law firm could do it, but we can do it differently and maybe cheaper and faster. Um, uh, you know, so th- there is a sense that you know that's evidence of that disconnect in 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 filling the sort of underlying needs of the clients. You know, maybe not the immediate ask, which is, hey, you know, put out this fire or solve this problem, and 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 finding a way to sort of get underneath the the issue, get to the business problem that the client is grappling with and try to find a solution for that that's maybe not just the traditional approach. 
Well, and you mentioned alternative legal service providers and, and a really huge story that we all heard about recently was that EY acquiring Thomson Reuters managed services, previously known as Pangea 3. What are you seeing as the role of, I mean, you don't necessarily have to predict the future, but even just like you're on the ground here, what are you seeing like uh, the way alternative legal services providers are impacting the marketplace now, today? Uh, you know, I think you'll see, um, uh, continue to see a lot of experimentation. So you're right. It is really hard to predict. Um, but I think, as I said, they, you know, these alternatives have been around for quite a while now. Um, many of them are quite successful and large and growing. Um, you know, we did our research on um, the ALSP market and found them growing at 10.8% on a, on a cumulative annual rate. And that's pretty good compared with the rest of the legal industry. You know, as far as the, the, the sort of size and shape of it in the future, I, I think there's, as I kind of said before, I think there's going to be, um, continue to see new models in that space, maybe some specialization and, you know, continued sort of fragmentation of the space. But then also, uh, you know, one of the things we've found in some of our research is that more and more, not just corporate clients, but law firms are turning to alternative providers really for access to technology. Because they realize they can partner with somebody who, who knows the technology, who has staff that knows the technology inside and out, and they can access kind of on a just-in-time or you know, on-demand basis through an ALSP. So I think that's increasingly going to be part of the mix here is that ALSPs can become a, a conduit for delivery of, of some of the technology that's maybe not the stuff that's used every day, but that can be useful you know, on a matter-by-matter basis. Yeah, that's an interesting observation. And I mean, so much of this, there's a lot of experimentation going on and it's and it's way too early to predict with any sort of certainty, I think, how these uh, things are all going to play out. I think one of the things that's interesting to me is that we've seen a handful of law firms who've actually developed technology that they've been able to do some pretty interesting mm-hmm. things with uh, to provide services directly to clients, Ackerman yep. Data Law Center yep. to, at, at Actuate Law now. Um, Wilson Sassini just launched this 650 product, uh, an expert system facing clients for California Consumer Protection Act mm-hmm. uh, compliance. And you know the law firms are really reluctant to call themselves a technology company, mm-hmm. which I kind of wish more of them would just really embrace that yep. and go for it on that. But I, I don't know, what are you kind of seeing as far as like more law firms maybe getting in that space yep. and and... I think there's a lot of runway there for firms to, if you know, if they really want to go big on that. There's, you know, lots of fields of law where the client is kind of just looking for a simple answer and and can use a, a you know a, a client facing tool to to work through the issues. There's great tools on the market now for, you know, building expert systems. So yeah, I mean, I think that's you know that's an example of a case where law firms really have a competitive advantage there. I mean, they have their brand. If they're, you know, if they're big in, in employment law like Littler, they can they can extend that brand by building the tools that you know that that serve that market and they and they are. And so I think there's, you know, other areas of law that maybe could be uh, could be served by that kind of tool. Yeah. And any thoughts on on other areas where you're or even just seeing things emerge, you think uh, examples? So I think one of the areas, I mean, you mentioned a couple examples already where a lot of uh, Tools that are used by um, startups or you know small companies. I think that's a that's a really fertile ground. I think that you know, that's not just not just kind of high tech startups, but even just sort of mom and pop businesses of different types have a really hard time affording uh, legal counsel. And, and you know, there's a lot of sort of basic things like articles of incorporation and, and various other sort of filings and documents that can be um, part of you know that kind of delivery service. Yeah. And then some of the tools I just mentioned are, are really not focused even on, well, some of them will serve mom and pop type, mm-hmm. but we see really large corporations very interested in yeah. some of those solutions and more space there for solutions as well. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, look, anytime, anywhere there's a process, you know, you can, you can turn it into something maybe that can take it out of the hands of, uh, you know, the one-to-one contact with an attorney and put it into a system, you know. And the beauty of it is, if you're the law firm providing that kind of service, you're, you know, you have you you have the the services backed by the firm's reputation. The lawyers are still there if there's a need to sort of, you know, if there's an exception or a need, you know need to go outside the tool. So I agree. I think there's I think there's a, a, still a lot of a, a lot of runway there. Yeah, and in fact, well, and of course, every every one of these tools that I've seen has a process of vetting and figuring out if the 
the user is, is if this is the right tool for them, and then if not, getting them to the lawyers. Mm -hmm. And the lawyers I've talked, the law firms I've talked to are deploying these tools are, of course, recognizing that. I mean, some of these tools are tools you'll give away for nothing, and it'll attract clients. Some of them will generate revenue directly. But then another part of the payoff is, is if you can get a portfolio work coming in, there's always going to, almost always, I have a hard time thinking of a case where it wouldn't be adjacent work in right. that field and that can come to the law firm. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, there, of course, there's providers like LegalZoom and others that sort of do some of this. But I think, you know, if you think of the sort of the branding opportunities for a law firm to say, you know, don't go there, go to go to our law firm's you know, system to do this because it's backed, as I said, it's sort of backed by our firm, it's backed by our reputation. You know you have a specialist lawyer you know, able to help you with this uh, if, if, it's not, you know, if something goes wrong or if it's not quite giving you the answer you need. Yeah, I've been, I mean, I think I mentioned a few examples. Chapman Cutler is another interesting example of creating some software in-house to really improve the value proposition on creating closing binders and things like that mm -hmm. for, for deals. And, uh, you know, the kind of thing, but I, there, it seems like there are a lot of opportunities across the marketplace for those things. Well, I want to transition to talking a little bit about data analytics and artificial intelligence, a couple of places where you do a lot of work. But before we do that, before we continue our interview with David Curl, we're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. Hey, law firms, getting paid is fantastic, but dealing with accounts receivable is such a pain. What if there was a better way? Enter Headnote, an industry-leading compliant e-payments and AR automation system. Their unique blend of features cuts through the noise and helps you get paid 70% faster. Skip the paper checks, spreadsheets, and awkward calls due to overdue clients. Get paid faster with less effort. Visit headnote.com for more information. And we're back. Thank you for joining us. We're with David Curl, Director of Enterprise Content at Thomson Reuters Legal Executive Institute. David, I wanted to jump in and, and you do a lot of work around data-driven practice, artificial intelligence, and some people talk about this like it's all one big area. Uh, I'm going to more and more conferences where people just refer to it all as AI. And uh, you know, I think going like we were talking about defining innovation. I mean, in this area too, I like to try to break it down, just even as a first cut, talking about metrics and small data, predictive analytics, automating tasks with artificial intelligence. Uh, now, I don't know, is that a useful framework? How, how would you kind of describe what is a, a really enormous space so that we can better understand kind of what, what we're talking about across that area? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've absolutely experienced what you've experienced in terms of everybody just sort of throwing it all into one bag and calling it AI. You know, if you go to a specialist conference like this one yesterday, there were a little finer distinctions drawn. And I think, I think maybe um, you're right. I think there is kind of a spectrum of this stuff. First of all, it all it's all based on data. I mean, if you think of, you know, a, a data-driven practice, whether it's from the, the most, you know, basic um, stuff, your organization needs to to measure and count stuff, <laughs> you know, uh, and that can be just what you know measurements around what people are doing with their time, how much is spent on matters, uh, you know, how you're staffing things and what pay rates are and 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 hourly rates and that that sort of thing. So there's just lots of stuff to measure in a legal organization that you know that's kind of step one and and it's not always been done very systematically um, in the past. And then I think the other sort of the next stage within that first sort of base level of competence you need is to is to have a, some sort of a governance strategy for for data. Uh, we had a fascinating, for me anyway, um, <laughs> panel at last year's uh, Emerging Legal Technology Forum, which is a conference we have in Toronto every fall, and it was a panel of uh, three or four um, heads of information governance within law firms, and all they talked about was how how they wrangle the data that their firm has because they have so much of it. But it's not very useful unless there's somebody's accountable for it. So there's somebody, you know, for its accuracy and, and and to make sure that it's always accessible and that it's always updated properly and you know what the update cycles are and all that. So I think 
at the basic level, that kind of role is becoming really important in, in, in the law firm. And I'm seeing uh, you know, more titles that indicate that the firm is, is giving it relatively more importance, you know, a director of information governance or a chief information governance officer even, I think I've seen. So you know, I think that's that sort of base level that's kind of the table stakes uh, today. You know, you mentioned the conference yesterday, and I should have followed up about this earlier, but the way you were describing earlier sounded like a really interesting conference. Can you just tell us a little bit more, like, who was there and what the purpose of it was? Yeah, yesterday was 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 called Augment uh, 2019, and, and, and the interesting thing about this conference was that it was, uh, it was an attempt to sort of bring people working in AI from both the legal industry and the tax and accounting industry, uh, because as you... No, Thomson Reuters serves the the tax and accounting business, um, and we are seeing kind of from a thought leadership point of view that the that the two industries have a lot of common interests and a, com- a lot of common challenges, and so we thought it would be a good idea to sort of bring folks together from uh, both sides to talk about the, the specific issues. But even there, uh, you know, you're kind of there to talk about artificial intelligence, but the, many of the conversations sort of turned to information governance and you know and, and, and data integrity uh, as kind of the, the foundation for all of this uh, on both the tax and the legal side yeah yeah that's really encouraging to hear that's great to hear um you know i think just when we get out of the legal industry and start looking at i mean some of the I mean, that's an obvious mm-hmm. connection, right, where we're seeing work being done that there's a lot of relationships, uh, but there, I think there's even so much to learn just looking at I mean, at the healthcare industry, at, you know, just yeah. all these different industries that, that there's really a lot that I think we could learn from in, in our own industry. Well, one thing that I, one observation I had, and maybe this is kind of mundane observation that just because I haven't spent my life focusing so much on the tax side, but... You know, there's a there's a different DNA maybe on the tax and accounting side, or the, the you know the, the the bigger audit firms anyway, where you know law firms tend to take the problem that comes in the door, you know, and 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 do the work, and and then then it's done. And I think there's more of a mentality on the on the tax and accounting side of okay, here's a business problem, we have some expertise. Let's build a system for the client that will solve the problem on a permanent basis and fix the process or you know whatever it might be. I think there's a little bit of a different mentality around that that I think that, that was a was a interesting for me anyway to see and, and a, maybe a new uh, way that law firms can think about this stuff. Yeah, well, I think that's a really really great point, and, and I mean it goes to a couple of things right off the top of my head. Like, well, first of all, people saying, well, so spreadsheets didn't decimate the accounting industry. Okay, well, but maybe they're thinking about yeah. the way they serve their clients a little bit differently. I think this also goes to uh, you know Jeff Carr and, and Pat Lamb and, and Nicole Arbox talk about this a lot about preventive law, trying to prevent problems right. before they ever happen. Mm-hmm. George Seidel and Helena Hoppio have written a, a book about proactive law, thinking about that. I mean. Um, and, and that's where, by the way, to turn this discussion back to data again, that's where uh, I think law firms could provide a lot of expertise in the, on the compliance side. How can a corporation use its data better to identify fraud that's going on within its company or, or you know, other illegal activities or you know, other problems that might arise in personnel issues and whatnot? So you know, the, the corporation has a lot of data that they can mine uh, for things like that, and the expertise of a law firm can sort of help help along those lines. Yeah, sure. Compliance, um, thinking about, I mean, litigation, right? The best yeah. litigation is the one you never have. Right. And, and exactly. how can we, do we really learn from each litigation on how we can maybe prevent one in the future? And- well, I think what, one of the things you learn with the d- litigation and analytics products that are on the market, like ours, for example, but uh, there are others, is, you know, all of a sudden, there's there's a lot of tra- lot more transparency in the in the industry. You see that you know this type of litigation in this in this district is going to settle for or, or or be you know have a, have a judgment in you know in this range. And and over time, you see you know it's pretty easy to figure out what some matters are worth, and you know you can you can avoid them at an earlier stage if you have that data about what the outcomes typically are. Yeah. Well, and and arguably even that is a narrow view of the world, right? Because that's kind of even just looking at what do we do once there's a dispute, yep. right? Yep. And uh, I think this kind of ties back a little bit into metrics and small data. Mm-hmm. And and I was kind of curious what you think are kind of table stakes or what you, trends you see emerging. Because it occurs to me that we talk about the data we have, we have 
few measures of quality. Uh, we don't, in the industry, we don't measure outcomes frequently. I mean, a huge difference, not only do Netflix and Amazon have the data, but they've got feedback loops. They, they serve up their predictions and then they know, they get immediate feedback on that. And, and so how can we kind of tap into more feedback loops? The, the litigation example I give, if we have data about litigation, that's great, but how come we don't know every time the business people maybe have some sort of a dispute on, on any level or even look at the contract and think, man, I don't have what I need there to get what I need from the other party. If we're not feeding that sort of information back into our systems, then how can we get better results? But, yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think the data or the sort of the data gathering or the focus of a lot of information uh, of data governance of efforts uh, to date is kind of just on cleaning up the data and most of it's not about feedback loops most of it's just about inputs you know how many people are working on this how many hours uh, you know what other expenses were there that sort of thing um, so you know I think there's a long way to go in terms of being able to gather and master and leverage that kind of data that you're talking about. But I mean, there's certainly room for, for more of that. Yeah. I, you know, I think a, a related question to that is my hypothesis is that we need more lawyers who understand all of this, including the mundane data stuff, mm -hmm. because if you, they need to be asking what problems are we sol trying to solve and then they can really be helpful on the help to figure out what data we could be collecting and mm -hmm. building these models and so on. I mean, what's kind of, I mean, there's a lot of discussion about all of this. Should lawyers code? What do lawyers mm -hmm. need to know about data? And I mean, what's kind of your, maybe the, your latest thinking, I guess, around the way lawyers need to be engaged and, and what they need to understand? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it, it's a, it's kind of, it feels like the, not the Wild West, but it's kind of a wide open discussion because, you know, like you said, there's the whole question of like, okay, I agree with you that it would be great if more lawyers would would have that sort of basic understanding about data. How do you get them there? You know, is it is it the kind of interdisciplinary program that, that you guys have here at Northwestern or others around the country at, at the different law schools? Is it maybe more taking some technologists and mm -hmm. teaching yeah. them enough about law to be able to help assist with, you know, that kind of question and, and, and problem? So I think it's an open question. I think we're still in an age of experimentation. And then we also have a lot of, as you know, because you've been in academia for a while, it, it's like herding cats, you know, to, to sort of change the way, uh, you know, an academic institute um, works and, and organizes itself and reward systems and whatnot. So, you know, there's there's a lot of work to do there. And I don't know, that kind of veered away from your question about what what the lawyers need to know. But I mean, that's sort of, that's the, that's the context for that discussion is that there's just a lot of people asking that same question and, and nobody, I don't think, has found the, the right answer to that, yeah. that balance. Yeah, well, and, and I would even just tie it back to this question how we were, you were talking about accountants um, and others kind of viewing problems from a broader sense and mm. seeing it as an opportunity. And, and of course, if you, I mean, having the lawyers engage in that and, and seeing ways in which, yeah. well, I just see, I see a lot of the discussions at companies about ethics, for yeah. example, and often the lawyers are not present at those discussions. And and yeah. how can the lawyers maybe lead in that area and think about regulation and law that we ought to have or that may be coming? And for yeah. just one example. Well, I think, you know, if you, if you take a step back from legal and you look at the rest of academia in general, you see a lot of really interesting programs, interdisciplinary programs where, you know, even at the undergraduate level, we're exposing students to data or to, you know, hard sciences and mixing them with, you know, with other disciplines. And it's odd that it's so hard to sort of get that kind of thinking into, into, into legal education because it's happening everywhere else. And, and, and almost every, you know, industry is affected by this sort of need for people who can think in an, in a sort of cross-disciplinary way. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and just, I have colleagues at other schools and I see other schools doing more and more of this. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're seeing more of it. Uh, and then you even mentioned as well, uh, educating people with STEM backgrounds, for example, in law, we, we have yeah. a program around that. We've got um, a program that uh, Dan Rodriguez started that Leslie Oster leads here at Northwestern, our master of science and law program. Mm -hmm. And in fact, those students are in our innovation lab and are working with the JD and LLM students who are working with computer science students to develop solutions. And so we're seeing, Mm -hmm. And we're seeing that side of it happen in, in some schools as well. Yep. Well, so let's, so I brought up metrics and small data. I'm really interested too on the, the predictive analytics part of it. 
you know, as a litigator, gosh, it was 10 years ago and I, I first started teaching as an adjunct and I was talking about calculating expected values. And there's this great article by Craig Glidden who, when he was at ConocoPhillips and he's now the general counsel at General Motors with Mark Victor on creating decision trees for litigation. And, and gosh, I was just certain that we're gonna see more lawyers mm -hmm. doing this, especially when you see someone like Craig Glidden writing about it and encouraging people to do it. Um, you know, the uptake on it has been slower than I thought it would be. There are definitely some people doing stuff. I don't know, what what are you seeing in the, in the marketplace as far as where is their uptake and, and what might it look like? And, and maybe might, how might you suggest people even get started? I think we're really at the beginning. I mean, it's, it, is, it is still pretty early. I mean, products like uh, litigation and analytics, uh, Lex Machina, haven't been around that long. And they only do so much. I mean, they, you know, they help identify, you know, they help boil down what the data says um, and, and help, help lawyers make, a, make an estimate or a prediction around certain things. And I think it's really early days. And I think like everything else, it's, it's about kind of a systems thinking. It's sort of taking your thinking out of like, what do I, what are the merits of this, this specific case right in front of me and, and taking a step back and, and sort of putting that, uh, that dispute in context and, and taking in all the information to, to be able to make a, you know, a reasonable prediction or have the, you know, have the machine do a, a reasonable job at, at providing you with a prediction. Yeah, well, I think that an interesting question related to this. So I had Daniel Beneke uh, from Baker mm -hmm. McKenzie, and I'm sure you're familiar with her article because yep. it was on the Legal Executive Institute. I, I like the way that she broke down what lawyers do and, and was talking about the AI empowered judgment and thinking about lawyers as providers of information and providers of labor as providers of prediction and then providers of judgment. And I mm -hmm. think when you think about it, like how much of what lawyers do, do we call it judgment that if you really thought about it, you'd say, Wow, it, it's really prediction yeah. mostly, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and I think you know, but 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 when you get up into the prediction and the judgment parts, yeah. you're talking about the high level work, the high value work that lawyers do, which is great. I mean, that's that's where lawyers want to be because the mm -hmm. some of the routine stuff is falling away, or going to other providers. And I, I think you're right. You're just like what I see as the judgment part is more when you get beyond predicting the matter in front of you and you go to the business problem, the underlying business problems that that a client might face, and that's where the judgment comes in. The the, the role as a trusted advisor, uh, where the lawyer can see not only the legal issues but the business issues, and that's that you know that's where the real value uh, lies for some of the you know the the people at the top of their practice. Great point. Yeah, and I think that. Um, I think this kind of goes back to some of the idea about the way that when we use these tools, the way that lawyers might redeploy and, and think about how to use their time. And, and uh, it seems rarer and rarer to me that there are exceptions to this, but um, how many lawyers really know their client and their client's mm -hmm. business in a way that they can, can function the way mm -hmm. that you're talking about? Right. You know? Yeah. I mean, uh, and it goes back again to education, the way you're trained, you know, you're, you're, you're trained in it's an internal facing education in the sense that you're 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 trained to understand the legal principles, regardless of what the context is. In in many cases, and so I think a big part of that is again the the education piece to sort of think more systems thinking. Yeah. Okay. So we've we've talked about small data and we talked about data analytics, and so and we're as we're trying to make sense of what the the data driven law landscape looks like. Um, Artificial intelligence. So, uh, you know, I tend to try to think about rules-driven. We talked about expert system and data-driven AI. Uh, on the other hand, uh, how do you kind of see that landscape, and what do you see emerging there? Uh, maybe some of the latest kind of trends that our audience might not be aware of. Well, we talked about rule systems already, and I, like I said, I think there's 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 still a lot of runway there for for some some new applications and uh, you know a, a market for that. We've also talked about one area which I think is again going to be one of the biggest for for AI, which is the the prevention and compliance piece. You know, looking looking for and anticipating problems before they become problems, mm -hmm. um, and and that you know because that involves a lot of data, and uh, that's what AI is all about. That's what AI is good at. You know, a lot of AI isn't really frontline stuff. Maybe not. Not all of it is going to be a client-facing tool uh, or you know something that the lawyer can say. Look, we used AI for this, but there's you know there's a lot of um, just simple classification of data that can that can leverage artificial intelligence. And 
uh, going back to data governance and you know sort of cleaning up data. I know you know uh, Dara Nevin. She was at the conference yeah, yeah. yesterday yeah. and 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 talked a lot about this. You know how how useful. AI is for taking a set of messy data and, and making sense of it in an automated way, in a way that you could never do. You could never sort of manually tag, you know, thousands of documents, uh, but you can use machines for that. So that's a kind of a sort of back office or almost a behind the scenes application for AI, but it's extremely useful when you need clean data. Another, another application is, um, you know, stuff like looking at timekeeping records, you know, to classify how lawyers are, are spending their time. And there's, there's automated systems out there that can sort of make predictions of, or not predictions, but make sort of make classify the use of time based on certain indicators and, um, and inferences. Uh, so that's another sort of, in a way, behind the scenes um, application for AI. Yeah. And, and that can't come soon enough for every lawyer in the industry. Yeah, for sure. For sure. <laughs> so I think, you know, you know, you asked me for kind of the big what's next, yeah. but I think the in, in many ways, the what's next is a bunch of sort of small incremental uh, improvements like that in the, in the way firms manage their data rather than some sort of, you know, big bang uh, application that's going to sort of, you know, take over a particular class of legal work. Yeah. So... You, you kind of alluded to the difficulty of predicting the future. And I guess we've, we've really kind of talked about this a little bit, but I'm going to ask my question anyway and push okay. you a little bit more on this. But, uh, you know, I think part of it is, too, that, yes, it's hard to predict the future, but I think we must try to predict the future if we, if we intend to prepare for the future. But even, even more so, I'd really like to push more of us in the legal industry, uh, especially when we think about providing better access to legal information, access to justice, improving court systems, um, creating you know, these value propositions by thinking more broadly like we were just talking about, you know, about how we can create the future. And so you know, where do you think maybe are some of the opportunities that with careful planning, um, we could be creating the future? And, then, and in that sense, what might we see you know, five years or 10 years down the road, might you say? Well, this may be a different answer than what you're anticipating or a different uh, direction. Um, but w one thing that's kind of on top of my mind these days is I, I just had a call last week, I think it was, with Professor David Engstrom and Daniel Ho at Stanford. And, and they presented um, at, a, at a conference out there recently uh, about a project that has to do with AI in the administrative state, in the regulatory state. So how is how are decisions being made uh, You know, within the within the federal government um, that are leveraging big data and AI. And I think, you know, you and I have been f talking now for over half an hour and, and we were kind of focused on the traditional legal services industry, you know, law firms and their clients. And I think, I think there's, there's a lot of work to be done on the government side, on the courts and in, in public administration, um, where there's the, there could be extremely valuable and effective uses of, of AI. Uh, when you think of the amounts of data that that government has, um, and 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 how it could be, you know, really re change the way government works and 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 the judiciary as well in, in many ways. Yeah, there are tremendous opportunities. I've I've had a chance to talk with David about that a little bit and saw his panel at, at Codex. I was just talking with my colleague Emerson Tiller here at Northwestern about the huge opportunities in administrative law. You think about the millions of decisions yeah. made there. So talk about fodder for predictions. I mean, that's you know, the predictions you can make about state court matters, you know, there's there's a lot of them, but you know, you like you say, if you think of how many adjudications the Social Security Administration makes every day, uh, and how many of them could be improved with, uh, you know, a little better data management and a little AI and all that? Yeah, yeah. So I, I like that answer. It may not have been responsive. I think that's the. <laughs> only, I think I think it's the only thing I miss from. Well, I shouldn't say the only thing. I do miss plenty of things from practice. I, I enjoy this new career, but one thing I miss is being able to depose people and you know say that's not responsive. I'm sorry, but uh, I guess I can't quite uh, compel you to to respond exactly to my questions here. Uh, so I did want to ask you about David. Also, you made the trip from Minnesota to Chicago a few weeks ago. We you attended yep. the, the law and technology demos that we did at Northwestern. Thomson Reuters sponsored, which we greatly appreciated. We and we I talked about this innovation lab. We had computer science students and, and master science in law, and our JD and LM students working on projects. Uh, we had challenges from 
submitted by by Mayor Brown, Reed Smith, Actuate Law, our Bloom Legal Clinic, and, and a public interest project. And you know, I'd really like that to be a model for collaboration. We want to get more corporate legal departments, and we've got legal aid organizations involved too. But uh, you know, we we had diverse interdisciplinary teams really working as teams. They built actual working prototypes, did did live public demos of those projects. Um, you know, I may be drinking my own Kool-Aid here a little too much, but uh, I mean, what do you think? Is, is that another way the the academy can get in, engaged in this space? I think absolutely. I mean, it was I love events like that. I mean, I get really jazzed by the energy you see, uh, and you know, especially since the clients, you know, or the partners out in the real world are there. You know, they're watching the team that yeah, worked with yeah. them perform, and, and you know, there's so many lessons in that. You know, it it doesn't matter if the specific app they're working on or you know whatever the software or piece of technology they're working on. Um, it doesn't matter if that has any legs beyond that evening. It's just the lessons that were learned along the way were all the things we've been talking about, right? It's like how to get lawyers to think about data and process and you know resource allocation and all these things that they might not normally get if they're sitting in a room you know, taking contracts class. So I, th- I do think you know, some form of that kind of working on real problems with real technology uh, is is extremely valuable and, and should be, you know, I think it should be a part of everybody's uh, curriculum. Yeah. yeah, well, you get no objections here. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we're, we're really excited about the, the possibilities of continuing. And then just the idea of bringing together, uh, I love trying to, the more events where we can have legal aid organizations mm-hmm. and people from courts and the large law firms and corporations right. in the same room, it turns out, I mean, what, from what I see is that so many of the problems are much more the same than they are different. Yeah. I don't know what your experience is. But. Yeah, in fact, uh, I was another event that I was at recently was out at Georgetown. Yeah. Um, they have the National Science Foundation sponsored a day-long three days, actually, parts of three days, uh, conference on the application of data science to access to justice problems. And and you'd be amazed at the, you know, the sort of the diversity of um, organizations and, and initiatives represented there. Uh, but there are a lot of people in academia on the data science side working on real social problems and, and, and legal problems and legal social problems with legal aspects and all kinds of things. So uh, there's just a ton of work to do, and and but part of, there again, it all goes back to data, and that was kind of the focus of this conference. Is you know what do we need to do to put the data we have to to work um, in in service of access to justice? Well, I think one of the themes of our discussion today has been kind of realizing the way in which the legal industry may be siloed, and there's silos inside of the legal industry. There's silos maybe inside of academia. Um, so broadening our lens, I mean, I think when we have these conversations, we tend to be very U.S. centric, mm. and probably do a whole show, just <laughs> multiple shows, just thinking about what's going on around the rest of the world. And you've, I know you travel a lot. You're in London. You're in uh, Singapore, China. But you know, can you just? Uh, we're, we're getting close to the end of our show here today. But if if you, what what do you think are some of the more noteworthy developments around the world as far as? Uh, I mean, I think part of it is we should be aware that firms and other organizations are pushing forward and, and legal tech startups on some of these tools and other places mm-hmm. around the world, which which will and has and, and continue to have an impact on the U.S. But I, I don't know, just what are some of your observations that we should be thinking about in, in, in jurisdictions outside of the, the U.S. here? Well, I, you know, I you're right. There's a lot of activity going on. And I think if you want to look at one place that's worth keeping your eye on, it's uh, Singapore. There's uh, a government-led initiative there, um, it's sort of executed through this, for the most part, through the Singapore Academy of Law. Um, they've developed a, a really comprehensive uh, vision statement. There's, so there's a whole document about how they want to transform um, the legal industry using technology, not just the legal industry, but also government, you know, aspects mm-hmm, of, mm-hmm. of legal yeah. services provision, and. Uh, the unusual thing about it is the comprehensiveness. You know, like here in the United States or in, in various places in Europe or even Latin America, you know, there are pockets of initiatives and forward-thinking people and, and new new forms of legal education here and startup communities over there. But in Singapore, they sort of, it's all brought together and it's a centralized government-supported um, effort. And, you know, to, so I think to the extent that they succeed... There's a model for other countries around the world. 
And there's also, just to take that whole region as well, there's a recent report that came out, a, a state of legal innovation in um, Asia Pacific, and it took a look at, I think, eight or 10 of the uh, largest countries in the region and picked apart, like, what are they, what's going on? What, what are the differences? What are the similarities? And there were a lot of differences. It was very fascinating. You know, in China, there's a lot of consumer facing legal apps. You know, you can solve almost any kind of problem on your phone these days there. In other countries like Australia, the, the innovation is mostly around business model. They're, they're, the sort of alternative legal services providers or new law companies are, are, are very big there. So, you know, I think that region in particular is very hot and, and dynamic right now. But I mean, I know you just got off the phone this morning with a classroom in, in Spain, you know, there's, there's yeah, law schools yeah. like Busarius in Germany that are doing a lot of interesting yeah, things. Yeah. Um, so it really is a, has become kind of a worldwide phenomenon and, and it's kind of decentralized, but also connected at the same time. I don't know. Is that your, is that your impression too? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's really exciting. I mean, we have students coming here to Northwestern from a lot of different places who are very interested in this. I mean, I can think of, I mean, we had students from Mexico and, and, and uh, France and, and, you know, just a lot of other countries, just in our LLM program, especially with some in the JD program, you mentioned the IE Madrid program and the Bucerius class. I mean, that, it's exciting to be there teaching just so many people from different jurisdictions. Uh, yeah, we're seeing the global interest and the global, yeah. not just interest, that sells it way short, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, there's a lot of activity, a lot happening in these other jurisdictions. Right, right. Yeah. So it's you, an exciting time, and I think people should be paying attention. Yeah. Well, you mentioned a couple of reports, I think. Are, how can people get their hands on those? Or, or maybe you'll tweet them out, and I should tell them they should be following you on Twitter. But Sure, I can tweet some links. There's some of our reports. The state of the Asia-Pacific was, was one done by the Singapore Academy Law. Um, so it, yeah, I'll, I'll have to go back on what, whatever we referenced here, and we can I can tweet out some links. Okay. Well, Thank you so much for joining us, David. Before we close, I want to make sure our guests, uh, so that you should tell them your Twitter handle. Oh, it's like yeah. all good legal innovators. They, they, they're, they're on Twitter, I'm, <laughs> I'm hoping. And, uh, and how else might they get in contact with you? Yeah, the t Twitter handle is uh, David Curl, all one word. So David, C-U-R-L-E. And uh, that's probably the best way to, to reach me if you want to just shoot me a message or if you want to just sort of follow what I'm up to. Yeah, yeah. And then you've got a, um, a nice bio on the Legal Executive Institute with a, yeah, a list of your articles. It's legalexecutiveinstitute.com is the, is the URL. And actually, there's a lot of goodies there, including um, you know all of our published reports will be there, information about our upcoming events. And then, of course, the main body of the site is our, is our blog with lots of articles. Well, thank you very much, David, for joining us today. Great. It's been great, Dan. This has been another edition of Law Technology Now on the Legal Talk Network. If you like what you've heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts. Join us next time for another edition of Law Technology Now. I'm Dan Linna, signing off. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.